Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, the title of today's show is Bruce Lipton and the Biology of Belief. But before I introduce Dr. Lipton, I'd like to set the tone a little bit here. And that is for us all to understand that modern science, and in particular modern medicine, treats the body as a machine. Modern science is based upon the notion that sick internal feelings, for example, result from some disarrangement or injury to bodily parts whether limbs, bones, organs, cells, or genes. And therefore, the only way to cure a sickness or an illness is to treat the body from the outside in. We also know from, some, from folks such as Richard Dawkins that science, at least some of them, believe that we are nothing but robot machines, as Mr. Dawkins says, uh, survival machines, blindly programmed to reproduce our genes. And then, as we know, in the Human Genome Project, biologists have uncovered the human genetic map, the parts that diagram, the parts diagram for this grand machine we call the body. So when you put this together, it's, it appears as if we are machines. But there's evidence that says we are not, in fact, machines. And there are problems with this model. For example, many of us may not believe that we are nothing but machines or robot vehicles. We've seen machines and robots. They look differently than we do. And isn't there something about emotions, such as love, inspiration, hope, and fear, that cannot be reduced to molecules? So as occupiers of these bodies, many of us may dispute the notion that we are nothing but survival machines. Then when we turn to the problem of reductionism, the thought that the natural world and our bodies can be reduced to a complex interplay of material particles. But interestingly, contrary to this conclusion, modern science has known for almost a century now that the root of what we call matter are not particles, but rather quantum waves, energy packets, probability equations, in short, something that is not a thing, and that's quantum theory, which we also know brings consciousness into the picture in determining our physical reality. Now, moving to modern medicine, we find another serious problem with the body as machine model. And that example would be the placebo effect, where we learn that powerful beliefs can bring about physical changes in the body. So all these things bring into question this body as machine model. Now, today's guest, Bruce Lipton, is a pioneer in probing the connection between spirituality and science. In his book, The Biology of Belief, he traces his own evolution from a mainstream biologist to a proponent, if not the pioneer, of the new biology. He began his scientific career as a cell biologist, receiving his Ph.D. from the University of Virginia before joining the Department of Anatomy at the University of Wisconsin's School of Medicine. Dr. Litton's research on, on stem cell uh, on stem cells focused on molecular mechanisms controlling cell behavior. 
and then in the early 1980s he began examining principles of quantum physics and how it might be integrated into his understanding of the cell's information processing systems. His later research at Stanford revealed that the environment operating through the membrane, the cell's membrane, controlled the behavior and physiology of the cell, turning genes on and off. His discoveries ran counter to the established worldview that life is, con is controlled by genes, foreshadowing one of today's most important fields of study, the science of epigenetics. Now, this is a big word, but as we'll learn in this show, it means something very powerful, which is that our beliefs and attitudes determine our futures, not our genes. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lipton. It's great having you here. Philip, I am so happy to be here and so appreciative of the invitation because, as you were talking about, uh, we're going through a transformation of awareness in the scientific field that will profoundly change the uh, course of evolution on this planet. Yeah, and, and you, you have been a leader in this field for some time now, and why don't you talk a little bit about what first set you on this course to be sort of, first I guess you were a radical, I'm not sure if you're a radical anymore, but what, what, no. what, what first set you on this course? Well, uh, at the time I was uh, doing my research on stem cells, I was cloning stem cells back actually in 1967, so like 45 years ago, uh, there were only a handful of us on the whole planet that even knew what stem cells were, and I had the opportunity of cloning them. Uh, a stem cell, just for the audience, is uh, uh, a way of saying embryonic cell uh, in a person that's born, so I can't call it embryonic cell anymore. Once you're born, we change the name from that uh, embryonic cell to stem cell. Uh, these are the necessary cells that are throughout our body that are embryonic cells through their lifetime for this reason is that every day we lose hundreds of billions of our cells through just attrition and age they die the skin cells are always sloughing uh, the digestive tract lining for example is replaced every three days like a trillion cells and it's like uh, where are you getting all the cells to replace these dying and dead cells and the answer is stem cells and that's why uh, everybody who's alive by definition has stem cells because they're replacing uh, their diminishing population every day so uh, a stem cell is like an embryonic cell. Here's a simple experiment, uh, and it was simple in the beginning, and it blew my mind from the beginning and changed the whole course of my life because at the time I was doing this, I was also uh, teaching in medical school and teaching students about the nature of how genes control life and, and the biology of the cell and the mechanisms and all that. So I'm teaching them the conventional story that you mentioned that uh, uh, genes are, are the source of life uh, and uh, that we're, we're just like programmed by, by these uh, genetic elements. Uh, and I'm teaching that, and I'm then cloning these stem cells, and here's what I do. So I take one of these embryonic stem cells, put it in a culture dish by itself. It divides every 10 to 12 hours, so first there's one cell, then two, four, eight, uh, et cetera, until about a week later I have 50,000 cells in the Petri dish. But here comes uh, you know, the most important fact of that is they all came from the same parent cell, so I have 50,000 genetically identical cells. Now, here's where the experiment is. It's so simple. Uh, cells are, are like fish. They live uh, in a fluid environment, like an aquarium. So when you cut yourself open, of course, all the fluids start leaking out. Uh, but if you want to grow them in a tissue culture dish, you have to create a, a very similar environment uh, in the tissue dish that you, they have in their body. So we create culture medium. And there's a chemistry to the culture medium. So here's the experiment. 
50,000 identical cells, genetically identical cells, put them in three, you know, split them up, put them in three different dishes. And in each dish, I change the composition of the environment, the culture medium. I change it a little bit in each of the three dishes. And the first dish, the cells form muscle. In the second environment, in, in, the, in the second dish, the cells form bone. In the third dish, that third environment uh, uh, causes the cells to form fat cells. So now you're left with a very important and yet profound question. What controls the fate of the cells? The fact that they were all genetically identical when I started uh, uh, says right away, well, it wasn't the genes that caused this. The only thing that was different was the environment. And this led me off on a whole new track about how uh, the genes don't control things, the environment controls things. And uh, at the time, of course, everything was, oh, genes control that. And matter of fact, that whole idea of genetic control is still in today's current textbooks. Uh, uh, the people talk about like genes turning on and genes turning off and genes controlling a process. Uh, the significance uh, of those statements is that they're all totally false. Right. <laughs> they're false <laughs> right. because, uh, uh, Philip, the simple point is a gene is a blueprint. It's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a blueprint, uh, just like an architect works with. It's a blueprint to make the, the building blocks of the body. So genes are blueprints for making proteins. And just think about it this way. very simple point uh, is that... Uh, a blueprint is just like an architect's blueprint. So we go into an architect's office and she's working on a blueprint and you lean over her shoulder and you ask her, is your blueprint on or is your blueprint off? And she'll look at you like you're crazy. It's like there's no on and off to a blueprint. And I go precisely the point about genes. Genes are blueprints. There's no on and off to them. They don't make decisions. They have no idea. They, they, they know as much about what's going on in the world as a piece of paper with a blueprint on it. They, they're just uh, pieces of information to, to make a protein. And we gave them the power of total control. And, and the fact is they control nothing. They don't even control themselves. So what the research in the tissue culture experiments revealed is that the control was coming from the environmental signals. And that's what led me to look for where's the actual brain of the cell. Because even as the textbooks will tell you right now, they'll say the brain of the cell is the nucleus. Uh, and that's because... That's where the genes are. Genes make the control. So the center of control is the nucleus. And the fact is, uh, the nucleus is actually the gonad of the <laughs> cell. It's reproduction. It doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. Uh, the intelligence of the cell is the cell membrane, the skin of the cell, uh, which by coincidence, and actually it's not coincidence at all, the human nervous system is also derived from our skin. Uh, so a cell and a human are actually models of each other. Uh, and how does it work? Just like the nervous system in the body, they, uh, we read an environmental signal, then process that signal and turn it into uh, a way of controlling the behavior and the genetics of the cell. Uh, I, I, I want to you know, stop this so we can get to a more pertinent question about what this means, uh, but I'll just add one more point. Go back to the experiment. The fate of a cell is determined by the composition of the culture medium. And this is a, a, in a plastic Petri dish, okay? A uh, uh, simple point is in a good environment with a good culture medium, cells grow well. And when the environment is bad, the cells begin to get sick and die. And if you want to make them well again, you, you don't give cells drugs. What you do is take them from the bad environment and put them back in the good environment, and they spontaneously will recover. Simple point. 
The fate of a cell is a reflection of the environment. So uh, now we're talking about cells in a petri dish, and I want to make the big jump here is, so how does this relate to a human? And it's very simple. We look in the mirror, Philip, you look in the mirror, you see yourself as a single human looking back at you. Yes, one organism. I go, well, a little bit of a misperception because you see yourself as a single organism, but if you uh, were in the microscopic world, you would see that you're made out of 50 trillion cells. It's the cells of the living entity, Philip, is by definition a community of 50 trillion cells. The simple point, a human being is a skin-covered Petri dish. <laughs> uh, underneath our skin are these 50 trillion cells, and they, and they have growth medium, and it's called blood. Uh, and here's the point. The fate of a cell is dependent on this environmental growth medium, whether it's the blood in the body or the culture medium in a plastic dish. To the cell, that doesn't make any difference. Uh, so uh, it comes down to the final understanding is how is our life controlled? And I say the cells respond to environmental signals which adjust their behavior and their genetics. The cells in your body are in a culture medium called blood. The chemical composition of that culture medium determines the fate of the cells, just as the same as in a plastic dish. And then lastly, and most importantly, the chemical composition of your blood is controlled by your brain and more specifically your mind. And therefore the significance is it's your mind and its thoughts and its beliefs and attitudes that cause the brain to release chemistry into the blood. And that chemistry in the blood, the culture medium, is the chemistry that selects and controls gene activity and behavior. And voila, we have just gone from mind to body uh, in a straight, you know, physical, chemical awareness of what's going on. And now you start to see is like, that whole concept of placebo effect and all that is not a coincidence, but an actual mechanism. Yeah, and I think I think one thing that that you do, and you just did it in a in a concise fashion, is that you bring science to some of these. I'm going to use the word new age, but positive thinking or new age principles, where where there's a lot of people who say, you know, uh, we control our destiny or you could become whoever you want to be, and thoughts control the world, which is sort of a Buddhist principle. And what, what you've done, I think, is move it up, up a notch or two, which is, this, which is your simple example with the Petri dishes and the, and the effect that the environment has on these, what we used to think, or, we, or some people still think, are, mach, are mechanical parts is, is not... It, it's not true. They cannot just be self-operating mechanical parts if, if the environment affects their, their function. It's in, it, it, in other words, the whole Darwinian uh, principle or, or assumption, uh, or maybe it's a Dawkins assumption, that, that the genes, the parts of the machine control who we are, it seems to me your experiments prove that to be wrong. Oh, absolutely, absolutely total correct. And, and for this other aspect as well, a gene is a blueprint, as I mentioned. The conventional belief is you are the direct readout of your blueprint. So whatever your gene says, that's what you become. Right. The new science, uh, which is called epigenetics, and we should explain that because yes. this is a revolution. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah you should explain. Yeah, go ahead. Um, genetic control is a statement that means control by genes. The new science is called epigenetics, and epi 
the prefix, uh, though very small, is globally changing the world because epi means above. So if I say epigenetic control, then I'm saying control above the genes. And this is the most powerful part of the whole new sciences because before the control was in the genes. Now we know the control is above the genes. I say, yeah, but what's above the genes? I say, well, the environment. And then I also have to say, but in the case of a human, between the environment and the cell is the nervous system. The nervous system's function. Read the environment, translate the information to the cells. And, and, the, and then I said, well, what's between that is there's a mind that does an interpretation. So it's not any longer straight, uh, the environment controls my life. It's my perception of the environment controls my life because the cells only see whatever the nervous system tells them. And if the tel nervous system sends them incorrect information, the cells don't know it's incorrect. They just read whatever the nervous system says. So it's our perceptions, which by definition mean belief. For a simple reason, not all our perceptions are correct, and yet we still run our lives with these perceptions. So we're running our lives with belief. Yeah, it, it seems you know. It, every time I have a conversation like this, there's almost there's almost two levels. There's the sociology or psycho or, or, or psychological level, which has to do with why epigenetics has not more fully permeated the textbooks. And, and, and the modern classrooms, and, and, and then there is the scientific, logical discussion we're having right now. And I, I always think that's, that's, a, that's an interesting sort of problem because it seems like the textbooks uh, is, are, are, are much slower to make these changes to the mainstream educational system. These are, these are extremely positive findings and in fact i think what makes your 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 uh your thinking radical is those who do any reading in evolution uh know that lamarck uh was has basically been wrecked wrecked over the coals for about a hundred years because he he came up in in his own theory of evolution before darwin he thought that the that the environment did affect organisms that, that there wasn't an, an inheritance of, of acquired characteristics. And I know it's, it's probably not the, exactly the same thing, but, but isn't there a degree here where Lamarck is sort of rising from the grave a little bit here? I sure hope so, because he was absolutely correct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and the fact is, uh, conventional biologists, uh, you know, they, they refer to him almost like a clown or a buffoon. Right. But this is based on a total misinterpretation that was actually, uh, this, it's a great story and it's a, a movie in a sense uh, of how Lamarck's uh, version was slandered by uh, uh, a noble person. At, you know, Lamarck was a lower class person and, and this noble person uh, was, uh, you know, Lamarck was way under him. Then Napoleon came in and reversed the table where the, the commoner went above the noble person uh, and, and Lamarck got elevated to a very high position. And then when Napoleon lost, he got demoted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the way they did in the old days. And Cuvier, that was the guy. Um, he's a guy that uh, uh, when, when Lamarck died and, and Cuvier was head then of the Royal Society in France and he's the guy who writes the eulogy of dying scientists which is a review of their life work right, right. well Cuvier hated Lamarck 
and he slandered him and he told these like Lamarck uh, suggested that animals uh, desire to evolve or, you know, that are, you know, that, that they're, ma- they're thinking about evolution, creating evolution. Uh, when uh, actually Lamarck said the word they need to evolve. And you say, well, how you can mix up the two? And the answer is in French, the word besoin means uh, need or desire. <laughs> so Lamarck was right. Animals have a need to evolve because of the environment. And, 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 and Cuvier wrote in his eulogy, uh, animals uh, have a desire to evolve. And that was like the joke of a fish at the edge of a pond. <laughs> thinking about if I just had legs, I could get out of here. Um, and, and all of a sudden you say, well, this one little thing, why did it make a difference? The answer was because for the longest time, only Cuvier's translation of Lamarck's work was available to the English-speaking world. So anybody who read about Lamarck read about it through Cuvier, who slandered him. And today we talk about Lamarck as a, as a clown. And as you said, he was the first person to actually, uh, he is credited as the first person to write a scientific theory of evolution 50 years before Darwin. And now we're beginning to see that his ideas were more correct than Darwin. So that's part of the revolution and evolution that we're facing on this planet right now. Yeah, and that's something very important for listeners to understand why why this is such a revolutionary idea. Because as we know, Darwin has basically controlled the biology evolutionary classrooms for over a century and a half. And if you read any of the leading neo-Darwinians, and that would be Dawkins, Ernest Meyer, and, and uh, others, they, they slam Lamarck, and they use Lamarck to contrast the, 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 the much more refined, advanced Darwinian approach to evolution. And the important thing, I think, is that if the environment affects uh, our genes, affects our blueprints for who we are, then we, then we do have the ability to change our blueprint to change who we are, and I think in in your book, the biology of belief, uh, Bruce, you you mentioned something about you know we're only limited to the extent that we believe we're limited, which which I thought was a very sort of uplifting way to put it, that because it because if our beliefs and our perceptions are at the root of what we are and what we can be, then it makes perfect sense for us to take the unlimited view rather than the self-limiting view of of a materialist and and so i think that that's i think that it's this this is something that that everybody could benefit from because it's because it's got science behind it not just new age hopes and dreams absolutely not philip and this is so critical because let's just consider what does the revolution in epigenetics actually say well number one Epigenetics says that the it's the organism's interaction with the environment leads to the selection of the genes by the organism to to adjust its biology to match the environment. What's really critical about it is the way we're taught in school is that the genes are programs. The cell is is actually in truth actually a, a programmable computer chip, and the nucleus is is a disk with programs in it. The genes are the programs. Our conventional belief system has said that. Yes, the programs run the show, uh, and it's read-only memory, meaning whatever the gene is, that's what you are. You got a cancer gene, you got cancer, period, something like that. But the new biology says 
number one, it's not read-only memory. It's read-write memory, meaning this. You can adjust the program as the, uh, uh, as the environment uh, is uh, changing around you. You adjust the program. And, and the significance about that is all of a sudden, as you mentioned, uh, if genes control me, I'm a victim. I, I, can't, I can't control the genes. That's the belief we're given. Your genes control you. Um, you're a victim, which means also you need a rescuer. Okay. And the industry steps in to say, we will rescue you for a fee. Right. Uh, uh, but the fact is this, but the new biology says, no, wait, genes do not control themselves. Genes are associated with the environment and our perception of the environment. Relevance, we can change our environment and we can change our perception of the environment. And therefore, we are the ones that are controlling the genes. So we go from victim of, of genetics like Dawkins' work to master right. of our genetics because as we change our beliefs, we change our life. And you brought up placebo effect, and that's absolutely how that worked. The placebo effect changes the genetic activity. But what you should really mention, because it's left out of the story, and it actually in our world that we live in, more important is that placebo effect is the consequence of having uh, you know, a, a positive thought about the outcome of your treatment or whatever it is. Uh, and then lo and behold, you have a positive result, even though the treatment was a sugar pill. Uh, and everybody goes, yeah, yeah. And I go, yeah, but guess what? A negative thought is equally powerful as the positive thought, but it goes in the opposite direction. There's a name for it in medicine. Negative thinking is called nocebo. Right. Nocebo, uh, negative thoughts can not only make you sick, it is now verified that they can kill you. You, you can be scared to death, literally. Uh, and why is this important? Because if we don't acknowledge that our thoughts are involved, uh, then we never recognize that every time we have a negative thought, we're actually changing our biology to complement the negative thought. Our, 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 bi our, our brain translates our thoughts into chemistry. It's like a reverse paint by numbers thing. There's a yeah. picture on the outside and the brain converts it into uh, you know, numbers of paints on the inside right. like chemicals, a, a simple point. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't like to, I mean, it's easy, it's easy to uh, sort, of, sort of increase the importance of, of this principle because because one of the things that I like, I like to say about this is that many of us lead our lives as if we are on autopilot. And, and, that, and, and that would apply to our bodies and, 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 and the world we live in, as if, as if it runs on its own and there's nothing we can do to change it. When actually your findings, and I think the findings of, in some other fields, are showing this is really a manual-driven world. And, and, and if you give up your control, you're basically going to the default mechanism where it is going to run down. And, and it's hard it's hard to ultimately be happy or to be healthy if you don't put any effort into into becoming a a better person or a healthier person now that's just sort of a sort of a big point there but but this autopilot principle I think is very similar to your read write metaphor which I also which I think is a great way to put it that that we're writing our own stories and and, and so um, it brings up the point, the additional point, which is to what degree can we control our genes? I mean, every time, every time we have these, I have these kinds of discussions, it's, it's, well, what is the limit? 
I mean, do we know what the limit is? And, and for example, the aging process would be would be something to bring in here, because because ultimately, you know, aging is a function of having diseases. And people say, you know, you don't die because of old age; you die you die of, of of illnesses. Have you given thought to to what what impact your findings have about the aging process? Absolutely, aging is a belief issue as well. Right. Uh, we, we are programmed to age. I ask you, how old are your stem cells in the sense of embryology? Uh, if a stem cell is replacing an existing cell, uh, is that a new cell or is that an old cell? And the answer is it's a new cell. So we could continuously be reviving ourselves. But the issue is this, a stem cell will be programmed by, by the information from our perception. Remember, our brain is between the cell and its behavior. And, and uh, what we can do, we can age ourselves with our belief system. And we do this all the time. The significance about this is that we, we look around and everybody ages. We have a program of belief. It's the belief that are downloaded into our minds in the first seven years of our lives that control the rest of our biology primarily. And, and this, is, this has been known for a long time. I, 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 you know, uh, I bring it up not because I enjoy their boasting about it, but... <laughs> The Jesuits have boasted about this understanding of controlling your life by your first seven years. They, they used to have a, uh, they still do, they talk about the fact, they say, uh, give me a child until it's six or seven and it will belong to the church for the rest of its life. Or something like, give me a child and I will show you the man. Yeah. What? What they knew was, if I get your first seven years of programming, that's where the hard uh, default programming comes from. So the subconscious mind is programmed in the first seven years uh, uh, for a very simple reason. It is in the first seven years of our life that our brain is operating at a low EEG vibration. That's a brain readout of brain activity using electrical activity. Uh, the EEG vibration for the first seven years of our life is predominantly theta, Theta is below consciousness. Alpha is consciousness. It's a higher vibration. A child's state of theta is like, a, it's a state of imagination. That's why children so readily mix the real and the imaginary world together in the first seven years of their life. But it's also, and this is most important, a state of hypnosis. So a child up through about the age of seven will record all of its life experiences uh, and see and create patterns out of these life experiences uh, and have them directly download into subconscious. So here's the fundamental point. The basic programs of behavior built into your subconscious were built in there before you were seven and before, by definition, you were using consciousness as a predominant brain state. So basically it says the fundamental behaviors that you operate from the subconscious with are actually programs that you download by observing your mother, your father, your family, and the community in which you grow up in. Uh, and they bypass consciousness, which is not even working, actually. And it's just like a, a video recorder. As a child, up through seven, you put all this down. It goes straight into subconscious, no filtering by the conscious mind, just straight in, a direct recording of whatever we see. And then you brought this up earlier, and this is important because we talk about the mind controlling our biology. And, and then we have to say, oh, wait, there's two parts to the mind, the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. The conscious mind is the latest evolutionary addition to the, to the brain right behind your forehead. And, and the conscious mind is the seat of your personal identity, your, your spiritual base. This is who you are. In the, and it's really your like primary office of you is in this prefrontal cortex behind your forehead. 
That's your conscious mind. Uh, it's a very creative mind. That's what makes humans so great because they have this creativity. Uh, so I say, Philip, what are you doing next week? And if you can come up with an answer, then by definition, you're creating a future before it exists. And that's the character of this conscious mind. Uh, the conscious mind is you. It has your wishes and your desires and what you want from life. So you wake up every day and you say, look, I, I want to be healthy. I, I want to have a great romance. I want to have a great job. And I say, great, this is creative wishes and desires coming from the conscious mind. Then you go forward into the day and you start finding out that life isn't as easy as that intention was. Uh, and then we start to think, oh, my God, you know, I'm a victim of forces outside of me because, of course, I wanted to be healthy. Of course, I wanted to have a great relationship, et cetera. And I'm not finding it. So what's wrong? And then here's what's wrong. And this is so fundamental to the whole foundation of all of us. And it goes like this. The conscious mind, the creative mind, you, wishes, desires, aspirations, positive thinking, that mind uh, is not time bound. As I said, Philip, I said, tell me what you're doing next week. You, got, you can take your conscious mind, move it in the next week. Or I say, what'd you do last week? And move your conscious mind backwards. Or I say, imagine in your mind and you take your attention off the present moment and you go up in your head and what's the point? The conscious mind is traveling all the time. Every time we're thinking and having thoughts, by definition, it's directed to that creative aspect of thinking and thoughts. But as you brought up, when your conscious mind shifts from the paying attention to the current moment, the default is the subconscious mind. Well, the programs, as we just brought out earlier, the primary programs, the subconscious mind, not your behaviors. You downloaded them from your family and your community. Uh, uh, and so when your conscious mind is thinking, then you default to the subconscious program, but now you're not playing your wishes and desires and what you want. You're, you're playing your understanding of the world as you recorded it from other people. And so basically you're playing other people's versions of the world, and, and, but you don't see it for simple reason. Your conscious mind's thinking. It's not paying attention, so the subconscious takes over the show. It does whatever the program says. You come back in, you're in control again for a minute, and it's like, oh, I'm taking charge, but you didn't just see what you did. Uh, I'll give a simple example. Um, let's say, Philip, you and I are, uh, get into to a car. To learn how to drive a car, we went through a training period. Once we trained, that we created a habit. That became part of our subconscious programming. So you and I get in the car today at the start of this conversation. We're, I'm driving to some place, and we, we start driving. We start this conversation. We're so engaged in this conversation. And then I look out the window, and I realize I haven't paid attention to the road for the last 10 minutes. And, and the significance about that is, of course, I'm not going to say, hey, Philip, guess what? I didn't pay attention to the road. No, I'm not going to say that. But basically, uh, if you ask me, what did you talk about during that, that 10 minutes? And I said, oh, yeah, Philip and I discussed this, this, and this. And then you asked me, what happened on the road while you were driving for those 10 minutes? And you go, well, I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. And I go, that is the, the, a great example of the nature of the conscious mind can focus on the conversation. The subconscious mind started driving the car. But what was most important about it was this. Because my conscious mind can still remember the conversation, it, it was also meaning that it was focusing on the conversation. And therefore, if you ask me about what happened on the road, I can't give you an answer about that because I wasn't paying attention. And that is the example of your, you pay attention to what your conscious mind's thinking about and everything that it's not handling, the subconscious mind will handle, like driving the car. But when that happens, you don't see it. Now we go back, summarize this, put us into a human's life. And I say, 
Every day I wake up with positive thinking, conscious intention to be totally successful, move forward in life, start to find that it's not working, then look at the world and say, God, I'm a victim of circumstances here and have failed to see this, that 95% of the time, and this is the scientific data, 95% of the time, uh, our, our conscious minds are not paying attention. That means 95% of the time our behavior is controlled by the subconscious programs. That means most of all that time we never even see our subconscious behavior. So if it's positive behavior, cool. When we're not paying attention, we'll be pretty successful anyway. But if it's negative behavior, then it says every moment we're not paying attention, we're sabotaging ourselves and we don't see it. The net result is, oh my God, I'm a victim of the world when the fact was, no, we created it. We created the whole thing. And, and, and I say, you know, but that's because when we're operating from that 95% subconscious stuff, we're really operating from the basic programs of how to respond to a world that we acquired before age seven. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's a, a really a great sort of summary of the power of belief. And unless you take a look at your beliefs, and a lot of these, as you point out, they're conditioning beliefs. They're beliefs that we acquire when we're young and we're too and we're too uh, how, uh, too young, uh, too too weak to or or too naive to fight back, and so we sort of digest all these beliefs. And many of us spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out whether those beliefs are correct or not, and whether we should accept them. Some of the some people never get to that questioning mode. I mean, I go back I go back to Socrates. Who who had that one line about the the unexamined life is not worth living, and and a lot of this goes back to to the Enlightenment, uh, where Kant said that the Enlightenment began when when man began to think for himself. I mean, all all of this stuff sort of comes comes front and center. All this important all these important thoughts come front and center, where if if beliefs do control who we are and i'm convinced they do then then it's to it's it's up to us to question those beliefs and to try to influence that subconscious mind is that is that that that's correct i mean that's that's where you're heading with this because i i think that is extremely important so like cleaning the house you know and keep in mind about this philip that we have to recognize as well is that when we play these beliefs, we are the ones that frequently don't see them at all. In my lectures, I give a story, and most people laugh because they're so familiar with it. And I say, look, uh, go back in your life. You had a friend you were very close with. You, you knew your friend's behavior very, very well. And you happen to know your friend's parent. And at one point, you may have seen that your friend shared some of the same behavior as their parents. So you casually say something like, hey, you know, Bill, you're just like your dad. And then you back away from Bill because Bill goes like crazy. How can you compare me to my dad? Uh, and most people laugh because it's very familiar. And I say, but this is, uh, there, there are two profound points for the very same little story. And profound point number one is this. Everyone else can see that Bill behaves like his dad. It's only Bill who doesn't see it. And, I say, why not? and the answer is, because why is he playing it? He's playing the behavior because his conscious mind wasn't paying attention. Yeah. Well, that's that's the answer. Yeah. He, he played his father's behavior he wasn't paying attention so he didn't see it uh, and so uh everyone else can see it well this the the second profound point very same story uh, as you're trying to bring up uh as well is we are all bill 
all of us are unconsciously playing uh, subconscious programs uh, 95% of the time. This is a conventional understanding of neuroscience. Well, that means then most of the time we're playing behaviors that are not ours, got them from other people who didn't have our wishes and desires in mind. And therefore, when we play their behaviors, it takes us off track from where we want to go. And yet, we, like Bill, don't see we're doing it. And, and that becomes very difficult. And, and, and here, I'd like to add this because this is the, uh, a new book of mine that's coming out in the, in the spring. Uh, uh, and basically deals with the issue we're talking about. I said, well, look, the conscious mind is, is yours with your wishes and desires. The subconscious mind's got your programming. And we're talking about, well, the problems arise because 95% of our life is coming from these programs from other people. Uh, and then the question would be, well, what would happen if you operated strictly from the conscious mind, which is like a concept called being mindful? Uh, what would happen? And I say, well, this is the basis of my new book called The Honeymoon Effect, The Science of Creating Heaven on Earth. And I say, you know, uh, you go back into your life uh, to a time you fell in love, head over heels in love with somebody. It may have lasted a week or a month or a year if you're lucky. Uh, uh, and you have this honeymoon experience, which I talk about as an experience of, number one, uh, most people are exuberantly healthy when they fall in love. It's like they glow with love. They're healthy. That they also have tremendous amounts of energy. Uh, they joke, you know, say like, uh, yeah, you probably made love for days without stopping for food or sleep. You had so much energy. Uh, and I say during that honeymoon period, which I, I call the honeymoon effect, uh, I say, was life so beautiful you couldn't wait for the next day to have more? And people say, yeah, it was so great. I was, I loved it. I say, well, here's an interesting point. The world may have sucked right up until the moment you met this person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your life goes upside down. The next thing you're experiencing is this honeymoon. And here's the point. The world didn't change. What changed? You changed. The world's still the same world it was before. You're different. You're responding to the whole thing differently. Before, hell. Today, heaven on earth. And then I go, but what was it that created this heaven on earth thing? And why also, in most people, does this honeymoon disappear and become normal life at some point? And the answer is simple. And that's the fun part. Because science has now revealed that when you fall in love and you're making love like that, you operate almost strictly from the conscious mind. As a matter of fact, it's a complete reverse. Rather than uh, operating 5% of the time from your conscious mind, wishes and desires, you now are operating from 90 to 100% of the time with your conscious mind. What's it mean? Every action, every behavior, every decision you're doing during your conscious time is based on your wishes and desires. So when two people in the honeymoon phase are interacting, guess what? They're both creating from wishes and desires and positive thinking and all that. And what did they create? Heaven. And I say, then why did the honeymoon go away? And the answer is simple. At some point, life gets busy. Your mind, your conscious mind has difficulty staying uh, present at their current moment and starts thinking about like paying the rent and fixing the car, things like that. And, and why is that relevant? Because the moment your conscious mind shifts from paying attention to the current moment, your behavior defaults to the subconscious programming. Yeah, but those are your father's or your mother's behaviors, for example. Why is that a problem? Well, they were never part of your honeymoon. Yeah. <laughs> Now, all of a sudden, you, your mind starts shifting and you start automatically playing these behaviors. And it turns out that these behaviors aren't what you brought you two together in the first place. As a matter of fact, some of these behaviors may be so destructive, they actually cause the whole damn thing to fall apart. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is, well, what was the difference? Heaven on earth, operating from your conscious wishes and desires as a, in making every decision and action in your life. 
and you go back to hell on earth when your conscious mind begins to wander and you start playing the developmental programs that you acquired before seven uh, and all of a sudden you go back to this regular world uh, and if it's just to sum this up because i think it's kind of funny uh, <laughs> is that uh the movie the matrix uh, people see it as a science fiction movie, and, and I have to say, I, I think it's more of a documentary. <laughs> it says, uh, take the red pill and let go of the program. I said, yeah, but what happens when you let go of the program? I said, oh, honeymoon effect. That's exactly what happened. And that when we got back into the programming, the honeymoon was gone, and we got back to, to the world that we live in, which is filled with lots of frustrations and problems and stuff like that. And it's like, what was the difference? whether you're operating with your wishes and desires or whether you're operating from the program. Yeah, that, I, that's, that's really an interesting um, sort of theme. I like that honeymoon effect. And, and as you were talking, I was thinking that that is, that is a magical moment for some of us that last longer than others, as we know. Uh, the, but, but one thing that is powerful about the, the real honeymoon um, is that it is, it is deep and it's, it, it's pervasive, it's like it's like you you become immersed in the other person, and maybe there's not room for your subconscious mind to do any mischief. So <laughs> so 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 you're you're you know you're absorbed in the other person, and so that tells me that we should we should spend more time being absorbed. I mean, you can't be absorbed in the other person uh, for a hundred years, but maybe we could be absorbed in something more productive than you know than fears and con- and and negative conditioning beliefs. So. The point, because this is how we get controlled, yeah. because the moment you get in fear is the moment you let go of control and buy into somebody else, the so-called rescuer, yeah. their program. because fear. And here's an interesting part. People don't even know this part. Uh, stress is the primary cause of all illness on this planet. Uh, heredity is about 5% to 10% at the most, and stress is 90 to 95%. Stress is due to the stress hormones being released in the body and altering the metabolism and all that stuff like that. But it gets the body ready for fight or flight. Uh, and in the process of getting ready for fight or flight, uh, the brain, the stress hormones cause uh, the blood vessels in the body to respond differently than in a normal situation. So, for example, when I want to get in fight or flight, I want the blood in my arms and legs because the blood is going to provide all the energy necessary to keep running or fighting. Uh, and so what happens is when stress hormones are released into the body, the blood vessels in the gut region are squeezed shut. And this forces all the blood toward the arms and legs so that you can nourish this fight or flight response. Well, the problem is, of course, the the visceral organs are there for your health and maintenance of your body, <laughs> keeping you healthy. So when you're in fear, you shut that process down. But the point I was going to get to is the when you're also in in a in a stress response, you you go into reactive or reactionary behavior. Hind brain function is just reflexes. You you no thinking because thinking is a slow process, and to save your life. Uh, when you're in a stress mode, the stress hormones shut down your thinking capacity uh, and shift the blood flow from the forebrain where thinking is. Uh, by squeezing the blood vessels in the forebrain, the stress hormones squeeze them, but that forces the blood to the hindbrain, which is reflex. Well, what's the relevance? When we become afraid, we start living in fear, the stress hormones shut down the blood vessels to the forebrain, our thinking processes, and then we become reactive at that point. Uh, and the significance about that is we become less intelligent. Uh, and, and this is known by all the powers to be 
because by feeding the population with fear, you do two things. So one we just mentioned was uh, shut down the thinking processes. And earlier I mentioned, but you also interfere with the, with the visceral functions, which include the immune system. So fear not only shuts down the conscious processing and puts us into reflex behavior, fear shuts down the maintenance and immune system of the body uh, to allocate energy for fight or flight. Point, when you live in fear, you become less intelligent and also uh, you get sick. Yeah. Uh, and then you look at this country that we live in and you realize, oh my God, They've been playing that fear card so long that we are one of the sickest and I unfortunately have to admit perhaps one of the least intelligent countries <laughs> in the world uh, at this point because of uh, living in fear in a more chronic lifestyle than in other countries of the world. So, so, so what does someone do about it so to, to deal with the stress and the fear? Uh, the the whole idea. Of, uh, this is an important point. Let's tie it back to epigenetics for a second. This so uh, this is a great tie into this story. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, internist uh, physician here uh, uh, in San Francisco, um, uh, and um, I just his name just he's a friend of mine. I just lost his name. I'll, I'll get it back in a second. Uh, uh, he did a uh, study to show uh, he split uh, prostate cancer patients into two groups. Uh, one got normal treatment as all you know medical standard treatment for prostate cancer with drugs and chemistry and all that kind of stuff like that. He took the second group of prostate patients, and for ninety days, it was that's how long the experiment ran. For ninety days, he changed their uh, diet. He taught, he taught them stress reduction techniques and meditation techniques. He just taught them that as a, you know, to put that into their lives. As a result, listen to this, in 90 days, 500 genes changed their activity, many of them responsible for the pathology, back into normal, healthy responses. And basically what it says is, my God, just changing your thoughts, just changing, you know, uh, yeah. getting, reducing stress and all that was the reverse of the cancer. That's what it was. Because it really reveals what now the, the American Cancer Society has to has to admit. Lifestyle is the primary cause of cancer with only 10% of cancer related to heredity. And, and all of a sudden it says, oh my God, we are thinking ourselves sick and we are living in fear. And the stresses that uh, we live in in our world are, are combining like perfect storm that we're experiencing out east right. uh, the 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 two things are combining here uh the stress is is making us uh respond in a totally different protective uh posture which is polarizing us uh is making us uh, react and not think uh and it's causing the uh, health crisis that is financially destroying this country uh all of this is happening because we live in a world of chronic uh, fear, and if you, you know, all you have to do is turn on the radio, or the television, uh, and sure enough, you're you're going to get something to be afraid of every every minute or two. Yeah, and I and there there's a lot of there's a lot of deep uh, thoughts there. I mean, there there's a lot of different things in our culture that create fear. I mean, we we could and and we don't have time to go through all of them, but I but I could not agree with you more that. That because we 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 still live in a in a sort of victimized mindset where we tend to blame 
the weather. We tend to blame other people, other religions, other nationalities, the economy for our ailments. And so we tend to, in, in my mind, we tend to project um, the, the, the negative facts upon something outside of us that we don't take responsibility for our own attitudes. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that more and more folks are coming out and saying and concluding that it's our attitudes that, that control our perception. You have scientific proof that it is our, our belief structure that, that, con- that controls or at least influences the blueprint. And I see this as being a gradual shading over over into more personal responsibility. Now, of course, that that's sort of a sort of a um, idealistic statement, um, but it leads to my 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 last question, which is, which is, what do you see on the horizon? I mean, you've been doing this for decades. I mean, you 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 are clearly one of the pioneers in connecting science with with the human potential. Uh, where do you where do you see science going now, uh, Philip? We're we're in this most exciting period in the history of human civilization that one could ever imagine. We're in a a, a period, uh, uh, and I don't know how it's going to turn out because we're coming to uh, uh, a crisis point. Which, if we go one way, we're going to do really good. If we go the other way, it's like okay, kiss it goodbye. To go, but it's like we are at the point of choice right now for a simple reason. Science has revealed, and, and it's not just a, an idea or hypothesis, a fact that we are deep into what is called the sixth mass extinction of life on this planet. Five times in the history of this planet, life essentially got wiped out and started all over again from the little bits and pieces. These five previous mass extinctions are attributed to things such as comets or asteroids hitting the earth and destroying the environment. Uh, and the current mass extinction is totally unique in this regard. We're losing species faster than even in the previous mass extinction. For what reason? Human behavior. We're undermining the environment and destroying the the ground which gave us life. Uh, We're destroying each other uh, without recognizing uh, that this this is antagonistic to our evolution because the evolution that we're facing right now is not the evolution of the individual. The human evolved hundreds of thousands of years ago. The evolution we're facing now is the evolution of the community of humans because we're forming what is called a super organism where each human is the equivalent in the cell of a body. So as I said, our, our bodies uh, are, are actually communities of 50 trillion cells. So the, the individual cell is a free living entity. 50 trillion of them come together, create harmony, built a body and an intelligence that we're operating from. Well, the point about it is this, the next level of evolution is each of us is like one of those amoebas. And as we come together, we create a, a super organism where we're the cells in the body of this bigger thing. It's called humanity. Right. We're we're focusing on the Darwinian uh, issue, which you brought up before, and I wanted to really kick it and, and also emphasize the nature of all the fear uh, about our survival is built into Darwinian theory because it says evolution is built on a struggle for survival, that it's built on a competition for fitness with winners and losers. And all of a sudden you say, oh my God, I got thrown in the game of winners and losers, and now the fear is losing, and the competition for winning is, is killing each other and the planet. Uh, we have to back off and go back to a Lamarckian point of view, uh, relax, 
be in harmony with the environment and recognize that we have to come together as a unit of people in agreement where all cells are not fighting each other. Uh, in your body, when the cells fight each other, it's actually cause autoimmune disease. And I would say that human civilization is facing autoimmune disease because the humans are killing each other when they haven't recognized we're all cells in the very same body. Uh, and this is why I'm so very hopeful as well, is because the beliefs that are leading to our sixth mass extinction are the beliefs that shape our culture. The beliefs that shape our culture come from the foundations of our, uh, our civilization, uh, academia, science, uh, economics, politics, uh, uh, religion. All these institutions are, have fed us with cultural beliefs that cause us to behave the way we behave today. And that behavior is what's responsible for the sixth mass extinction. What I find so encouraging is that there's a new generation finally with a name now after the baby boomers, the, the new generation, people 40 and under, constitute what is called the millennial generation. Millennial generations are the young people with all the college debt and no jobs. <laughs> These are the people that are feeling very left out of the picture, thinking, oh my God, the, you know, what's this word? I'm not part of the system. And I'm going, great, for the reason is this, to evolve, the system has to profoundly change its foundation. Essentially, it has to fall down and rebuild itself again because the foundational beliefs of those institutions, I said, like education, economy, politics, healthcare, these foundational beliefs are creating the problems we have right now. And Einstein said, you can't solve the problems with the same thinking that created the problem. And that's why you, you, when you look around, you see these institutions falling. Most people are in fear. Oh, my God, the system is crashing. And I'm the guy who's going up and jumping up and down going, yay, uh, for the simple reason is these are the institutions that are also causing us to go to instinct. We're yeah. extinct. Yeah. So, so the, the point is the institutions are failing. And now we have nearly like 50% of the population called the millennials that don't belong to the structure. And why is that important? Because the structure can't maintain itself when it starts losing the support of the people. So we have nearly 50% of the people, if you go out there and tell many of these millennials, hey, the stock market's gonna crash and they'll look at you like, so what? You think I own a stock or something? <laughs> yeah. uh, and the significance is what? We are on the edge of a threshold of an evolution where a new generation connected by the internet, the nervous system to hold the billions of cells together, the internet has done what? Has created a younger generation that could give a damn about same-sex marriage or racial issues and all that stuff. They're way beyond that. They're into global community. They're into harmony and oneness and totally so different life than the baby boomers and the precursors of the baby boomers that are still there. Um, the significance about it is we're on the edge of manifesting a new civilization. And the crashing and crises that we face right now uh, can be perceived in two ways. One, oh my God, the world that I know and live by is crashing, I'm scared to death. Or the world that is falling apart and making us going extinct <laughs> is going to crash so we can create a more uh, thrival or the oriented civilization, a, a world in which we and the environment learn to live in harmony with one another once again and recreate the garden. And as my new book says, hey, look, we each can create heaven. We've done it before in our lives. It may have been only for a short time, but if you understand how we did it, it could be uh, an entire lifetime of that experience. So 
I, I am a very excited uh, person because I know we're facing this choice, and and uh, and and it's big, and it's playing out uh, of whether we see all humans as part of the same system, or we use the Darwinian belief that says, "Screw everybody else, I'm the most important one in the world." Yeah, and I I think that that's a a really good way to to close the show, and what what you just said there is exactly consistent with my own thinking, and it. Uh, as I read about my own book, The Heaven at the End of Science, but I, but I think you said something that I want to repeat here, at least put in my own words, and that is, if you look at one person, one person undergoing this self-examination of their beliefs, trying to become more conscious of the beliefs they hold, to change some of those negative acquired conditioning beliefs, and, and he or she gradually becomes more in control of their belief system and their and, and sees the results reflected in the world and therefore it sort of gains momentum and this person becomes more healthy, lives longer, uh, uh, is, is happier, etc. And if you, if you look at that person as a cell, there's nothing stopping us from, from humanity from changing one person at a time, just like that individual changed one belief at a time, and and so I so I think that that I I share your excitement. It, uh, it I I don't think that this that this revolution has hit the streets yet, but I but I also think that it's here to stay. I I see the momentum building, uh, and I'm happy I'm happy to say that that Dr. Lipton, you are clearly one of the leading thinkers in this area because you bring the science and the credibility and the research and the presentation to the to the subject so i'd like to thank you for your time it's been a, it's been it's it's been a great conversation with you and now your website i think it's brucelipton.com is that correct? Lots of uh, uh, free information, right. uh, articles and uh, interviews and teleseminars and videos, all kinds of things available to check out the new science. Yeah, and I, I checked it out myself before the interview and there's a lot and there's a lot of a lot of good stuff on there. And as you mentioned, your new book's coming out in the spring and then you have the, then your your uh, another book you have is what's called Spontaneous Evolution. Is that what it is? Yes, it's exactly uh, how, as you talked about, we, we have to change the sciences because the, the, the new book talks about four fundamental scientific beliefs that shape the world we live in that are now found to be totally false, and yet we created a culture based on them, and that falseness is uh, actually causing us to, to lead to our, own, uh, our own extinction. Yeah, and so all this, is, all this is extremely important. It's real. It's happening. Uh, check out uh, Dr. Lipson's website, one of his books, and you know, and be part of the movement that is going to change the world for the better. This is Philip Merton, and this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Merton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 